Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. And as we're in the second season, second week, excuse me, of the Advent season, the church's countdown to Christmas, as I mentioned earlier, though it's a countdown to Christmas in the church that it's a much slower and intentionally reflective pace, as a means of preparation we're, for Jesus to be born anew in our lives, we are going through over these next few weeks recognizing how the beginning and the end of the Christmas story goes far beyond the boundaries of the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. We started last week by looking at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be moving on to Deuteronomy 18 in a moment. And as we think about Deuteronomy 18, I want to reflect on the idea that while the overture to December 25th is well underway, as I mentioned at the start of the service, various holiday traditions that we have have kicked into full gear. And one of the more widespread customs this time of year is the sending and receiving of the annual Christmas card or letter. Show of hands, how many of you have sent out your Christmas cards already? Raise your hands if you sent out your Christmas cards already. <laughs> Susie Webb, gold star. Gold star. <laughs> All right, let's try this a little differently. How many of you have received one or more Christmas cards or letters so far? There you go. Well, you're not going to receive any more unless you send out the ones you're supposed to be. <laughs> that was hilarious. I was really not expecting that. <laughs> I bring all this up because in many ways it is helpful to think of the book of Deuteronomy, what we're looking at this morning, as something of a letter. A letter that's postmarked for future generations by Moses. Moses, God's chosen deliverer of the people from slavery in Egypt, wrote, as you know, the first four books of the Bible, but this fifth one, which he also wrote, his last writing, is much more personal than the rest. Having gone as far as he can go, Moses in this book provides his farewell address by way of four sermons to the people who would become Israel. And these messages, again, were intended to offer some direction and guidance as the Israelites prepare to enter their new home in the Promised Land. In the twilight of his life, however, within these words authored by Moses so long ago, we are about to discover something of a birth announcement, yet another hint that the unfolding of the Christmas story began long before the pages of the New Testament. Let us listen closely. The Bible, open, words on the screen, follow along, please. It reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself... Whoops. This should be another slide. No? Is that it? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Apparently, it's going to be one of those days. <laughs> I just need a moment. I'm just kidding. 
All right. <laughs> On the surface, these brief couple of verses, this appears to be Moses' passing of the baton, the exchange of one messenger of God for another. And that's undoubtedly how the people initially understand what Moses is saying here, as in the verses that we didn't hear, if your Bibles are still open, they wonder to themselves how we can recognize an actual spokesman for the Lord, and then God lays out the answer to the question. And the, by the way, that scripture reads that the answer to the question is if a prophet tells you something, and that something's going to happen or says something in my name, and it doesn't happen, it doesn't come true, then that prophet is a false prophet. They are speaking presumptuously. Now, when Moses presents this, the people, like I said, are thinking that he's just passing the baton. But in the hindsight, in hindsight, in the years to come, later generations, not this generation, not even the generation after, but much later generations will come to realize, will come to perceive that Moses here was not speaking of his immediate successor, Joshua. And in fact, he wasn't speaking of any of the messengers who would follow after Joshua. After centuries upon centuries, it took that much time, came the realization that the one God had promised here had to be someone greater than Moses, greater than everyone who came after Moses. In fact, if we were to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 3, we discover that the apostle Peter explicitly declares this realization in one of the first speeches he gives to a crowd of Israelites as he points, quoting this scripture, to Jesus as the one God had promised through Moses. Now, to appreciate what fully, led, what fully led to this realization of the great variance from what the people thought they were receiving to what the Lord ultimately delivered in the person of Christ, we have to go back even further than Deuteronomy. We have to go back to the foot of a mountainside. Because, I don't know if you caught it when we were reading the scripture from Deuteronomy, in this excerpt from Moses' final message to the people, he outlines this future expectation and it all hinges on referencing an earlier experience that the Lord had with the Israelites. And the backstory to this passage that Moses is referring to, the backstory of this moment takes us to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, at the foot of Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. Now, to set the scene, on the other side of the Red Sea, having been led out of slavery in Egypt, the people are just beginning their journey through the wilderness toward the place that God has prepared for them. But before they go any further, the Lord seeks an audience on the mountainside with those whom he has rescued. What's really interesting is that we herald Christmas, we often talk about Christmas, as the time that God came down to be with us. But actually, it's the second time the Lord manifested his presence. This is the first time God draws near to the people to give them his word. Before the word becomes flesh, the word, of God, the word of God was carved into tablets of stone in what we know as the Ten Commandments. Our creator's top ten rules and instructions for living life the way God intended. So that we can experience the best rather than the worst that life has to offer. But in this moment in Exodus chapter 20, as the Lord draws near... We're told the people stay at a distance. Before the boom of the thunder, the crackling of the lightning, the smoke that encircles the mountain, before the raw, unfiltered glory of the Lord's presence, the people are awestruck and overwhelmed with fear. And even though, in that moment, Moses assures them to not be afraid, to draw near, Everyone insists 
They will die if the Lord comes any closer. Promising in that moment to listen to Moses as an intermediary. The people, get this, underline it, the people beg for less of God rather than more as we're told they remain at a distance. Think about that. The Lord initiates an invitation into a deeper relationship, but the people opt to keep God at what they perceive is a safe distance from them. They're presumably fine with the laying down of the law and having a spokesman from the Lord tell them what to do, but they reject the opportunity to engage and experience the presence of God up close and personal. And some people in conversation preparing for this term are like, well, of course they did because the raw, unfiltered presence of God, if they had come closer, they would have died. Really? Did Moses die? No, he didn't die. We're, that, we, 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 that's something that we come up with. It comes up later, but in that moment, God says, you can come forward. Moses says, don't be afraid. God wants to commune with you, and the people remain at a distance. They reject the opportunity, think about that. They reject the opportunity to engage and experience the presence of God up close and personal. And if you know the story in Exodus, initially the Lord consents to the people's request. Stay back, okay? And he mediates his presence and his word, the law, through Moses. But if you know, if you remember all that happens between that moment on the mountainside And here in Deuteronomy, standing on the verge of the promised land, as Moses records his final words, if you remember, if you recall, things didn't go very well for the people. Though they had promised, stay back, we'll listen to you, Moses, you just tell us what God has to say. Even though they had promised to listen to Moses, they did the exact opposite. Grumbling and fighting against him every step of the way forward, only to constantly find themselves taking three steps backward. And how about those rules they were so eager to follow? Those rules, they couldn't even keep the first three, let alone the rest. And yet still, as we come back to Deuteronomy, right? As Moses, in preparing to retire, now foretells of a prophet, a messenger like him who God will raise up, the Israelites, again, initially receive this as news of a new hire. Someone to fill Moses' shoes as the Lord's liaison to them. Someone to keep on laying down the law, telling them what to do for God. But what they've misunderstood the whole time, and for centuries will struggle to comprehend, is the point of that first time God came down among them. The first time God came down, the Lord wasn't looking to simply lay down the law. God purposed to be in relationship with his people. On that mountainside, our creator wasn't just giving us rules to follow apart from him. Our creator was, through his word, through the giving of the law, unveiling his character. And the character of the life he designed and intended for us to live together. Providing us with the law those instructions for life, the Lord's intent, again, wasn't for us to go off on our own and do things for him. Following the instructions for life that God gives us isn't for God's benefit. It's for our benefit 
so that, again, we can experience life the way it's intended to be. But it was always a package deal. It was always a package deal all along, the Word and the Spirit. It wasn't just a list of instructions for living on our own. It was rather a way of life that's only possible when we rely on the Lord, living not apart from God, but abiding in and with God. Another way of saying this is that at that first encounter with the Lord on the mountain, the people wanted the rules, but not the relationship. They wanted the rules, but not the relationship. But that's the thing about the Ten Commandments. That's the thing about the Ten Commandments. They simultaneously reveal the way life was meant to be, but in so doing, they also reveal how far short we fall from living life the way it's supposed to be. God's top ten, on the one hand, inspires us to aim higher in living our best life rather than to settle for less, less than for which we were created. But at the same time, God's top ten humbles us. It brings us down to earth as to what we can do apart from our Creator. And what we can do apart from our Creator is nothing good. Nothing good. God's top ten convicts us in all our fruitless and ultimately damaging efforts to play God rather than relying solely on God. In that first encounter, the people wanted the Lord to keep well away. They falsely believed they could remain at a distance from God without becoming more distant in their mindfulness and reliance upon the Lord. But our Creator isn't interested in remaining distant and detached from our lives, from His creation. The God who made us in His image is a relational God, a God who is single-minded in his desire for us to live full and abundant lives, not separated from him, but again through him. Lives that, by the way, don't just last for a couple of decades, or if we really run the gamut, maybe a century or more, but lives that last for all eternity. Beloved, we are created to worship. We are created to worship, to live out of a sense of devotion. Devotion to the glory of our Creator. And out of such devotion, to realize and experience the very best life together that is possible. But when we try to keep God at arm's length, if the Lord is not the focus of our devotion, then inevitably, there's no way around this, inevitably, we will end up making something or someone else in our life a false god. Something or someone that cannot bear the weight of the glory of the Lord, of what only God can give and do for us. In other words, idolatry. Idolatry, trying to fill that God-shaped hole in our lives with other things, whether it's the worship of ourself or our, our unconscious or explicit attempt to try and make someone else be our Messiah. Idolatry, the first and original sin. Idolatry is what fractures and diminishes our life together. 
Idolatry is what leaves us in competition with each other rather than in mutual joyous collaboration in seeking to reflect God's goodness together. And that's why, by the way, the first rule of life out of the top ten, God's top ten, that the Lord gives the people as, by the way, they start to pull back from him, is to remind the Israelites of the very first principle of creation, of the relationship. No other gods before me. No replacement idols made of silver and gold. Bad, very bad, very bad for you. Not bad for me. I'm, I'm a jealous God, but it's not because I'm going to go home and, and sit in the corner with my hand, arms crossed, you know, fuming. I'm a jealous God because I want the best for you, and what's going to happen is it's going to be bad for you because what you worship apart from me isn't going to hold up. You're not going to hold up if you're worshiping yourself, and anybody else or anything else you try to make me isn't going to bear the weight of my glory, and it will be bad. Bad for you. And if it's bad for you, because we are our brother and sister's keeper, then it's going to be bad for everybody else. And if we're all worshiping our own false gods, that's a lot of bad. Nonetheless, after that first encounter on the mountainside, the people foolishly still thought that life would go better if Moses talked to them instead of God. If they operated through a third party, a mediator, a messenger. However, as the Lord let them discover, as Moses' tenure in that role clearly bore out, there is no substitute. There is no replacement for the fullness of the presence and the person of God in our lives. Even the best and brightest among us are just as broken and flawed as we are. Liable to act willfully and not always completely in concert with God. Just ask Moses. Just ask David. Even the strongest and wisest who go before us can and do fall victim to the temptation to tell us what we want to know. What we want to hear. Rather than to always speak the hard but loving truth of what we need to know, even though we may not want to hear it. So it was with Saul. So it was with Solomon. As all of Israel's history in the Old Testament demonstrates, no leader, no prophet, no messenger, no judge, no priest, no king, no one, apart from God himself, can take us where we need to go, can reshape us into who we were created to be. This is what the later generations, persons like the Apostle Peter, this is what they came to comprehend at long last on the other side of the Christmas story, that the messenger, the mediator, God promised to the people through Moses could only be God himself. That the one who would be raised up from among the Israelites could only be God coming down, this time not in fire and smoke, but incarnated in our shared humanity. That the one who would speak in God's name and that out of the very words God would put in his mouth, that that had to be 
the word of God made flesh. That the one we are to listen to, who speaks to us everything the Lord commands, only what the Father tells him, could only be the very Son of God. That the one who is not false, who we can know is right and true because everything he proclaims in the name of the Lord has taken place and comes true is our Messiah, is Jesus Christ. Jesus, by the way, the one who doesn't merely teach us the rules of life, God's top ten, but lives them and fulfills them perfectly like no other. And in so doing, ultimately sacrificing himself out of love, a love so strong that it conquers death, Jesus not only models a way for us to follow, but in becoming even nearer to us than anyone could have imagined, beyond sharing our flesh to giving us his very spirit, Jesus enables and empowers us to become all we were created to be. Beloved, Jesus is the one the people were waiting for. And Jesus is the one we have been waiting for. And yet, the fascinating thing about this time of year is most people, and maybe even some of us here, are waiting for Santa Claus more than we're waiting for Jesus. Now, don't worry. This isn't going to become another religious rant on the man with the big red hat. Jolly old St. Nick has his place in all of our holiday festivities, but that place is not to shape our view of who God is. And yet, most people, again, some even within the church, perceive and believe God to be something like Santa Claus. You know, a white-bearded old man who comes down from the sky to reward the children who are nice with whatever is on their list of wants, but who also withholds his gifts from those who are naughty, giving them little more than a lump of coal. But a God like that is what the people wrongly perceived they were dealing with on the mountainside, right? An exacting, foreboding, divine judge, arbitrating all of life from a posture of frustration and anger. A moral lawgiver who informs us of the rules of the game and whom we then must appease by being nice instead of naughty. Under that watchful eye of that God, this God who always knows, by the way, if we're sleeping or if we're awake, if we've been bad or good, a list is being kept on all of us, a ledger of our pros and cons that is being checked twice in order to pass final judgment. Follow the rules, follow the rules, and we can earn, we can merit our blessings. God, I promise, if you give me what I want, I'll do anything for you. Follow the rules, and we can get whatever presents we ask for. 
including life ultimately after death. I'm going to live a good life, Lord, so I can earn my way into heaven. I know it's not about earning my way into heaven, but just to make sure, I'm going to prove you didn't pick the wrong person. Break the rules. Break the rules. Step out of line. If we're not nice enough, we'll keep ending up with lumps of coal. Why is your life such a mess? Why is your life a wreck? Why is everything just blowing up? And then you'll have that good Christian next year will tell you God's trying to get your attention. You must have done something wrong. Because God only blesses the good children. The bad children, though, he disciplines out of love. Break the rules. Step out of line. If you're not nice enough, you're not going to end up with blessings. You're going to end up with curses. Until one day all that coal you've been accumulating, one day when you breathe your last, all that coal is going to get ignited in your final resting place. Someplace rather warm and uncomfortable. Forever. Functionally, if our view of God is something like Santa Claus, engaging us in terms of whether we've been bad or good, then we are right to be afraid that Jesus Christ is coming to town. If we believe that our standing with the Lord rises and falls on what we do for God in following rather than breaking all the rules, then the arrival of the one born in Bethlehem is not the birth of our salvation. It is the delivery of our doom, our destruction. But the good news, the good news is the God we worship isn't anything like Santa Claus. Now, before I go any further, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that God isn't anything like Santa Claus. This doesn't mean that whatever we do or fail to do, whether yesterday, the day before, long ago, or tomorrow, escapes our Creator's notice. Beloved, the God who comes to us in Christ catches all and misses nothing. The thoughts we hold on to, the words we say, the actions we do or do not take all have consequences for either good or bad. But the God we worship isn't like Santa Claus keeping score because the God we worship is too busy setting things right. Too busy setting things right, bringing good out of evil. Forgiveness out of failure. Hope out of perseverance. The God we worship is forever working to turn our mourning into dancing. The world's sadness into joy. And in the end, yes, to raise life out of death. Because, beloved, in the divine accounting of heaven, there is no such thing as good enough with God. Good enough. We talk about that all the time. Well, I think that's good enough. You've been good enough. But there's no such thing in the divine accounting of heaven as good enough with God because you and I and all creation being anything less apart or together, being anything less than we were created to become is just not an option for our creator. We worship a God who doesn't settle for good enough. 
And yet, hear this, good news, in this divine pursuit for holiness, for wholeness, for shalom, the deportment of the God who comes to us is not in that pursuit to condemn us, to condemn us for all of our shortcomings, all our wrongdoings, all our disobedience. The deportment of this God who comes to us is not to rub our nose in the stink we make of what he has created and then confining us to the corner. No. The posture of the God we worship is that of a loving father who runs to where we are, who comes to us and then embraces us with forgiveness, clothes us with healing, and proceeds to lead us back home in celebration. That's the God we're waiting for. The one who in the birth of Jesus doesn't just come down a chimney for a moment in the night to give us everything we want, only to then magically disappear. No, in the birth of Christ, we encounter the God who empties himself of all glory, who gets down and dirty, embracing the vulnerability and fractured nature of our lives, who takes hold of our humanity to give us not what we think we want, but what he knows we desperately desperately need. And this God, who in Jesus becomes what he has created, comes to us again, not because he's interested in our being nice, not because he's looking to receive niceties from us, because the good news of Christmas, the good news of which Christmas is but the first chapter, is not about what we can do for God but what God comes down to do for us. What God comes down to do in and through us, transforming our life together and remaking all creation. This is, again, the gospel, that even though we, like the people on the mountainside, may remain at a distance from God, God does not keep his distance from us from his self-revelation at Sinai to his humble birth in Bethlehem, all the way to his self-giving by being lifted up on a cross at Calvary, our creator works to close the gap between us, to mend our brokenness, to redeem our losses, to resurrect our hopes, to reconcile us, to become a people of truth, peace, and love. And so... As the season of Advent progresses and the arrival of Christmas draws ever closer, let us remember and never forget that what we celebrate is not a question of who's naughty or nice. In a broken world filled with broken people, we all manage at times to exhibit either tendency, being naughty or nice. Again, let's keep that in mind before we're too quick to judge ourselves or judge others. No. The solution to the world's misery, the solution to all that ails our humanity, cannot come from within ourselves because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we need are not more rules to live by, things to do for God in order to prove ourselves good rather than bad. We have enough rules already that by ourselves we can't manage to keep. And while our Creator gives us these rules to live by, 
laws that again reveal a standard of perfection and righteousness we cannot achieve or attain on our own. God does not give us these rules in order to set us up to fail. Our Creator gives us these rules to make it clear the kind of life He intended for us all, the good, right, true, and beautiful life for which we all long for is the kind of life we can only experience together in communion with Him. God isn't looking for us to do things for Him in order to prove ourselves good or bad. No, at the height of our naughtiness, it wasn't Santa Claus who first came to town. It was and it is Jesus. God came down to us in Jesus Christ to do for us what we cannot do on our own apart from him. To embody the realization of all these laws, all these rules perfectly lived out. God comes down in Jesus Christ into the reality of our lives as they are. Humbly submitting himself to our difficulties, our temptations, our storms, our hungers, our burdens, our sadness, our frustrations, our pain walking through the darkest valley of our suffering, embracing our terminal affliction, the inevitable shadow of death. Jesus does all of this in order to clear the way forward and empower us to follow him, to follow and abide in him, to experience and to share the full, abundant, and everlasting life for which we were all created to a sin-stained, self-obsessed, naughty-beyond-imagination world. God comes, God continues to come down through the Word and the Spirit of Christ to flesh out His divine vision and our earthly hope for a better life, for our very best life. Therefore, let us have no fear. Let us not remain at a distance let us draw near to the one who will be born anew in our lives. O come, O come, Emmanuel. On you alone we wait and depend. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.